Genesis 25, verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, Jokshan, fathered Sheba, and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Ashuram, Latushim, Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastwards to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lachai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbiel, Mibzam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Chadad, Tema, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is God's living and active, inspired and perfect word. Let's go to him now and ask for his help as we understand it. Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us. And Lord, now as we seek to unpack and understand and exposit your word, Lord, help us by your spirit. We are, without your spirit, deaf, dumb, and blind. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, take your living word and use it to soften our hearts, unblock our deafened ears, open up our blinded eyes. And, Lord, as a result, help us to behold the glory and the beauty of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage before us serves as another major break in the storyline of Genesis. And and as we've seen already with these kinds of hinge sections in the book, where we're introduced to the descendants and lineages of characters, so we see here another regular pattern. The non-elect line of Ishmael dealt with before the narrative moves on to the chosen line of Isaac, and we continue, we continue following in the story the line of Isaac and his descendants. In other words, what, what we're seeing in Genesis is much like an extended family tree outlining the elect people of God. We started, if you remember, with Adam and Eve, but after the fall and mankind's corruption into sin, 
God's electing grace started delineating between people. Do you remember? Between the seed of the woman over and against the seed of the serpent, a.k.a. Satan. The first delineation then came between Abel and Cain. And then we saw God's chosen line of people between the sons of Seth over and against the ungodly sons of Cain. And on and on the story of Genesis went. And these these two delineations could really be titled the line of believers versus the line of unbelievers. Or you could see it as following the line of God worshipers versus those who worshiped false gods and demons. But ultimately, Genesis is presenting it to us as those who are chosen by God versus those who are not. We'll see this in a very clear way next week when we look at the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. And even there, before they're even born, we see God choose Jacob and not Esau. But this kind of theology, of course, makes people feel very uncomfortable, and we'll, we'll wrestle with that theology next week. But I want you to see here is that this is how Genesis is presenting to us God's saving, redemptive purposes. We're, we're, we're following and tracing this line of God's chosen and redeemed people. And, and here, before we move on to the chosen Isaac and his descendants... Moses, the author of Genesis, wants to briefly relay to us what happened to the other descendants of Abraham, those who were not brought into God's redemptive purposes. The careful reader of the passage will see that the whole text is organized with the death and burial of Abraham right at the center. And then on either side of Abraham's death, we see the genealogies of those children of Abraham who were not recipients of God's saving grace. Lineages that branch off from the line of the seed of the woman. Perhaps this is made most obvious in verse 11. See there verse 11 where it tells us that after Abraham died, God blessed Isaac, his son. It's a striking verse. A blessing that communicates a a handing down of God's covenantal promises. God blessed Isaac. Not only did Isaac over and against all the other sons and grandsons of Abraham listed here, and I count about 19 of the other children, not only did Isaac alone receive the land as an inheritance, no, it seems that when we read that God blessed Isaac, that Isaac also became the recipient of all the promises God made to Abraham. We'll see that as we move through the rest of Genesis. This land would be Isaac's land. And Isaac, too, will become the father of many nations. Isaac alone was the child of promise. And so Isaac alone is blessed by God. Look there at how Moses describes Abraham's sending away of his other sons in verse 6. How does verse 6 end? He sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. See how he repeats the eastward movement there? Here, I think, is an explicit reference back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember when God, in his, his curse upon Adam and Eve, sent them eastward, east of Eden? Here, then, Isaac is seen as blessed as he inherits the promises of God dwelling in the land, whereas the others, well, they're all sent away eastward, disassociated from the blessing. 
Indeed, in moving east of the land, it's being presented to us as a curse. As verse 5 paints the picture in stark contrast, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to these other sons, they simply got a gift and were sent along their way. Perhaps part of this is connected to what we see in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. There's actually a fair bit of uh, disagreement here as to when Abraham actually took Keturah as a wife. Was this after Sarah's death, as the placement of this passage might suggest? Or did this happen much earlier, perhaps even while Sarah was still alive? The fact that she's called a concubine in verse 6, see that there? Along with other concubines, plural, see the plural use of that word, like Hagar, another one of uh, Abraham's concubines, strongly suggests that Keturah was given to Abraham while Sarah was still alive. First Chronicles, First Chronicles chapter 1, she's mentioned there again, and lo and behold, the author of First Chronicles refers to her as one of Abraham's concubines. But whether Abraham married her as a concubine alongside Hagar and Sarah, or maybe later in life, the emphasis of this passage is on the children she bore to Abraham. The name Keturah means spices, not spicy, but spices. And because several of her son's names are associated with the Arabian Peninsula, most scholars believe that her sons became major players uh, in the international spice trade, gathering and, and distributing of frankincense and myrrh and other er aromatic spices from around Arabia. Though it's clear from the text that they played no immediate role in God's redemptive purposes, right? They're sent away. And Isaac alone was to be the son of blessing. Nevertheless, in God's grand scheme of salvation, he would still provide a way for these children, quote-unquote, to return. The prophet Isaiah, later in the New Testament, brings these exact sons up by name in Isaiah chapter 60, where Isaiah looks forward to a time when a Messiah will come, and Isaiah says he will establish his heavenly Zion here on earth, and all nations, magnetized by the glory of the Lord at the center of that Zion, all nations will be gathered together and drawn to come and worship God. Isaiah says, then the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, there's the sons. And all those from Sheba shall come. Again, another son. They shall bring gold and frankincense. There's the spices. And they shall bring good news. That is the praises of the Lord, Yahweh. Isaiah 60, verse 6. What Isaiah is seeing is the offspring of these six sons now being wrapped up into God's redeeming grace, not through Abraham's son Isaac, but through the future and greater son of blessing, Jesus Christ. Do you see? These six exiled and cursed sons of Genesis 25, they're going to have descendants who are brought out of spiritual exile and brought into an eternal blessing. But by believing in Jesus, they actually become the spiritual offspring of Abraham and heirs of the promise. I think that's fantastic. The Bible's not leaving any loose ends here. 
I think this is also just as true for the descendants of Ishmael, who we read about down in verses 12 through 18. Interestingly, and you can see this here in verse 16, there we see that Ishmael bore 12 sons, 12 tribes of people. And this, this also is no throwaway line. We're being presented here with a kind of foil to the 12 tribes of Israel who will come later. In, in one sense then, Ishmael and his, his 12 princes serve as a kind of anti-Israel to the true Israel. And to be sure, many of those tribes will act in anti-Israel kind of ways later in the Old Testament. Jeremiah brings up Kedar, for instance, with respect to how the people of Kedar will be devoted, and they are devoted, to false gods and all their idols. I think we see this in how Moses records Ishmael's death in verse 17. Look at that. He says, <coughs> These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. It's almost, it's almost a word-for-word -word copy of what we see about Abraham in verse 8, right? Except for one glaring difference. Can you see the difference between verse 8 and verse 17? In verse 8, Abraham is said to have breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. There's an emphasis on Abraham dying in a good old age. He's a, he's a man full of years. I think we're meant to see here God's unique covenant blessing on Abraham, a blessing which brought a life full of years and years full of life. Now, to be sure, Ishmael was blessed by God as God had promised him back in Genesis 17. He, he, he would have many children and his descendants would become mighty princes over nations. But the way in which he's brought up here, I think, communicates that though Ishmael is blessed by God, he is not a recipient of God's unique covenant blessings. Ishmael and his sons are not the chosen line of God's redemptive purposes. And yet, even though God's saving grace here in this section of Genesis is narrowed here from Abraham straight through to Isaac, God's grace broadens as redemptive history progresses. Listen again to how the prophet Isaiah looks forward to that day when even these pagan idolaters will find redemption in the coming Messiah. The very next verse in Isaiah 60 brings up these sons of Ishmael. This is what he says. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to the Lord of Zion. The rams of Nebaioth, there's another one of Ishmael's sons, shall minister to you. And they shall come up with acceptance on my altar. And in them I will beautify my beautiful house. Do you see? Even here God is working out the salvation of a multitude of nations. In other words, his plan has always been to have people worship him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the way in which that would be accomplished, the means by which all peoples could find favor before the Lord, would be in and through one son. The, the promised seed of the woman, a, a sole descendant of Abraham. In Genesis 25, that line finds it in Isaac, but ultimately it will be found in Jesus Christ, him in whom all the nations will be blessed. This is why I think Moses places both, both of these genealogies on either side of Abraham's death. 
He's showing us through contrast that the covenant promises God made to Abraham, though they would be narrowed in through his son Isaac and later Isaac's distinct lineage, even still those covenant promises will reverberate outwards into the surrounding pagan nations when Christ finally comes and gives his life for the world. Abraham's death here at the center of this text is is literarily surrounded by nations moving away from God and God's promises, cursed as as they move eastward. But in Christ's death, what do we see but the nations be becoming blessed partakers as, as they partake of the same covenant promises moving inward into Christ's blessing. In Christ, the nations become the children of Abraham. So now our passage zeroes in on the central theme of this text, verses 7 through 11, Abraham's death and burial. We're told in verse 7, that these were the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. The sense we get is that Abraham's concluding years of life were ones filled with completeness, satisfaction. I think what should be highlighted are actually the years filled with faith. If Abraham left Ur, When he was 75 years old and and he dies here, we see at 175. Then that means for 100 years, Abraham lived as a faithful exile, a sojourner and a pilgrim. For 100 years, Abraham's faith mulled over the promises of God. For 100 years, his faith matured and developed as he went through the mountain peaks and the valleys of his life and pilgrimage. For a hundred years, we're told in Hebrews 11 that Abraham looked forward to the city that has foundations in heaven, whose designer and builder is God, desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. I think this is certainly what it must mean for Abraham to have died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. The phrase also indicates, doesn't it, the limited nature of life? That each man has his own allotted and limited amount of days. A span of only so many years designated by God. Isn't this what Hebrews 9 tells us? It is appointed for a man to die once and then after that comes judgment. All our days are numbered. Our full complement of years already determined. And this should actually serve as encouragement to us. None of us die too soon. You know, all of our loved ones who have passed away died exactly when and how God determined it to happen. Remember, when my dad passed away in 2007, it was completely unexpected. He was one of the best men I knew, and so his his death was tough for me. But I I remember I was reading at that time Lorraine Botner's classic book, The, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, I know not your everyday reading, but I like to read that stuff. And I was reading it, and I distinctly remember finding comfort in that theology being laid out in that book during that time. 
reading of a, of a theology of God's immense bigness and sovereignty, and that God was indeed in control over every aspect of life, over every minute detail of existence, and that even my dad's death was not somehow outside the divine purposes of God's good and wise plan. And that even in the pain, God was able to bring about good. He, he planned it to be. It, it couldn't be any other way. He, he's God. Reminded of Psalm 139, verse 16, which says, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every second of every day is sovereignly planned and determined by a good God. There's something good there, isn't there? And there's something good, too, about embracing our own mortality. And understanding that we do have a limited and, and a sovereignly allotted number of days. The life that we have right now, we're alive, we're here, we're, we're hearing each other. The life that we have is a gift from God and we only have so many days to live it. And so understanding and owning our own limited time here on earth should really motivate us in wisdom to spend ourselves and to live our lives with determination and with focus, exerting every bit of energy that we do have now, not on things that are fleeting, but on things that matter for eternity. The Puritan pastor and preacher Richard Baxter said it this way. Do not promise yourself a long life or a life of prosperity and great matters in this world, lest it entangle your heart with worldly and fleeting things, engaging you in covetous desires, and stealing away your heart from God, and thus destroying all your serious apprehensions of eternity. The approach of death greatly influences the mind. And so if we do not count on having a long life, our thoughts of death will greatly help us in our preparation for eternity, working in us a desire to pursue holiness throughout our lives. Come to a man on his deathbed, or a prisoner who is about to die tomorrow, and test him with riches, test him with honor, or temptations to lust, or drunkenness, or any excess at all, and he'll think you're a madman to talk of such things at this time. Oh, how serious we become in repentance when we see death is at hand. When death is staring us in the face, every sentence of scripture has life and power in it. All time, every second becomes precious to us. If you ask a man about to die if it's better to spend time in needless recreations or idleness or in prayer and holy conversation, thinking about the word of God and the life to come, well, he will easily be satisfied with the truth and dispute all frivolous temptations to sensual time-wasting. Expectation of death's speedy approach, of our coming quickly to stand in the presence of a holy God and enter into eternity. Thinking upon this reality has much in it to awaken our souls. And since time is so swift and death is so unexpected, well, then common reason and wisdom teaches us to live in a constant readiness to die. In other words, Baxter is reminding us here 
that we'd be fools to suppress thoughts of dying or, 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 or to distract ourselves so much with the joys of this world that we never prepare to die. Well, the wise Christian is that man or woman who meditates on the reality of death and in so doing prepares to live life in such a way that they're prepared to die. Mature Christians are always preparing to die. In one sense, that's what believing in Christ is all about, isn't it? Before we come to believe in Jesus, we, we, we first become aware that, well, that we've spurned and offended Jesus. We're, we're awakened to the fact that because of our sin, because of who we are as sinners, we deserve to die and to spend an eternity in hell. God's holiness demands that. And so what we do with, with that truth that, that, that's affecting us, what we do is we mourn. We're, we're weighed down by that truth, the truth that, that we have broken God's law, the truth that we deserve eternal death, and that there's nothing we can do about it. And what most people do in that moment, in the midst of mourning under the weight of that bad news, is that they try and hide from God. They try and distract themselves with all sorts of things to drown out the reality of their being under the judgment of God. That is until we hear the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And when we're, we're stuck in the darkness of that bad news, the bad news that God will judge us, well, then the announcement of the good news of the gospel, that good news, it, it breaks into the darkness of our dungeon where we're imprisoned under guilt and fear. And like a flash of light, it crashes in, allowing the fresh air and aroma of God's grace to fill our lives, and it frees us. It frees us to no longer hide from God, but to do the most unthinkable thing possible, run to God. To find our escape from God's wrath in God's love. And that's the gospel. That God so loved sinful men that he gave his only begotten son to take our wrath for us. And so when we run to God's son, Jesus Christ, and we put our full trust in him, what we're doing there is we're preparing to die. We're preparing to meet God in eternity and to stand before him in judgment. And when asked why God should, should let us, a sinner, into the glory of his holy and pure presence, the only answer we can give, the only hope the Christian has is because Christ has taken my place. He gave his life for my life. And so in preparation for this moment, God, I gave my life to him. I trusted him, I followed after him, and I made sure my entire life was a life found resting in him. Look, this is how Abraham dies, resting in Christ. We know from the New Testament that Abraham looked forward in faith to the coming of Christ and that he put his full trust in him. Paul argues in Romans 4 that the faith Abraham had in Christ was a saving faith. Paul in Galatians chapter 3 says that the same gospel that saves us was the same gospel that saved Abraham. And Jesus himself in John chapter 8 verse 56 declared that Abraham was overjoyed and rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. I think this is why Moses says in verse 8 that Abraham was gathered to his people. You see that? Not to his grave, not down to Sheol, but gathered to his people. A, a, a euphemism for being gathered into the realm of the truly living. A, a realm where he is even now alive with Christ. 
and, and all the other faithful believers who have trusted in Christ as they await the final day of resurrection, when the trumpet shall sound and all their bodies will be physically brought to live and reunited with their ever-living souls. We see in verse 9 and following that Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. And this is the field that Abraham purchased. Abraham was buried there with Sarah, his wife. What Moses is doing here is, is reminding us of the importance of the land, the land that Abraham had first purchased to bury his wife, Sarah, uh, the, the land that he was now being buried in himself, and be the same land that that would later carry the remains of, of Isaac, of, of Jacob, and Joseph. Here was a small plot of land that at first sight represented death, right? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a burial place for God's chosen people. But in the bigger picture, this land stood as a testimony to eternal life. Through this land, as it would expand and grow, and through the people who would come to populate it would come one man who in his death would bring true eternal life. Think about it. This, in, this entire passage is filled with the sad aroma of death. Abraham's death is a sad moment for us. Uh, the, 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 the greatest enemy to mankind has just claimed another one of its victims. And Abraham was a bright light, right? He, he's a heroic figure that we've been reading about. But here in Genesis 25, the darkness of death has struck again, and it's just put out Abraham's light. And yet, through the covenant promises God made to Abraham, covenant promises that will eventually culminate in the person of Jesus Christ, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through that person, God will overcome death. In Abraham's great, 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 great grandson, Death itself will suffer its first death blow. And now, as we all await the second coming of Christ, I think we do so to the sound of death dying around us. Have you ever wondered what the sound of death dying sounds like? I think it sounds like us worshiping the risen Savior. It, it, it sounds like the sound of God's adopted children singing songs of praise as we lift up our voices on Sunday morning to worship the God who has redeemed us from death. Friends, when we sing our closing song, when we sing all of our songs, I want you to sing and realize that, that we're singing because we're alive in Christ. In Christ, we're alive and death will not get you. And so we sing. And that's the sound of death dying. Verse 11 tells us that after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. And, and again, when it, when it says God blessed Isaac, that, that's going to be the theme we follow in the next 10 chapters of Genesis. But, but I want us, as we end here, to consider the, the, that little tidbit we get of Isaac settling in Be'er Lahai Roy. Do you see that there? We should recognize the name of that place. If you remember the account of Hagar back in Genesis 16, do you remember that? When, when Sarah, out of contempt for Hagar, right? Sarah already set up this whole plan. Abraham, take Hagar as a concubine, and maybe you can have a child through her. She has a child, and now Sarah hates it. <laughs> so in contempt for Hagar, Sarah makes Abraham cast Hagar out into the wilderness. 
And it was there, out in the wilderness, out in the desert, where the Lord God comes to Hagar and he provides for her and he promises her, yes, you will have a son, Ishmael, and I will make nations through him. It's there where Hagar names God as Jehovah Jireh, the the God who sees. And subsequently, that place became known as Be'er Lachai Roy, the place of the living one who sees me. This is a place testifying to the God who sees and provides. And what's so interesting, Keith pointed this out to me last week, this place was named by Hagar because of God's promise to her and her son Ishmael. God, God saw her and provided for her in blessing. But here in chapter 25, it's not Ishmael who's living here, but Isaac, signifying, I think, that from here on out in recorded redemptive history, it will be Isaac and his lineage that becomes the object of God's seeing. And to be sure, God sees all people at all times, right? He's, he's omniscient. But I think the emphasis here is that God has his, he has his sights set on Isaac. He is covenantally focused on this elect heir of the promises. Later in the Old Testament, through the prophet Amos, God will tell Israel that he knew them alone out of all the nations of the earth. It's a striking phrase because in one sense, we're aware that God knows all about all the other nations. There's nothing God doesn't know. He's God. So when he says, Israel alone have I known, what he's saying is that there's a unique covenantal focus. Israel alone is the object of my love. And this is what's going on in Genesis 25. We're seeing God's covenantal focus, his special love, go from Abraham now to Abraham's descendants. But not all of them. The, the, the children born to Keturah and the children born from Hagar and through Ishmael, they, they, they all go east. They're moved out of God's covenant site. No, it's Isaac who now alone becomes the recipient of God's covenantal love. God sees him. Friends, God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And that's still the way in which God operates today. He has not changed except now. God's covenantal focus is strictly and solely upon his son, Jesus Christ. It is only by being found in Jesus Christ that any of us can receive blessing from God. Jesus is our Be'er Lahai Roy. Where else can we find rest and safety from God's holy sight? Right? God sees everyone, as Will prayed for us earlier, and he sees everything in everyone, every thought, every word, every deed, and on that last day, we will all stand before the all-seeing judgment of the eternal God. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who are found resting in the blessed covenant son of Jesus Christ, when God sees us, he will see Jesus in our place. He'll see Jesus' righteousness as our righteousness. He'll see Jesus' holy life as our holy life. He'll see Jesus' obedience as our obedience. Don't you see? If we ever want to hear those words of verse 11 said of us that God blessed him, well, friends, you must be found in the blessed one, Jesus Christ. I pray, I pray that everyone leaves here this morning sure of where you stand. When God sees you, will he see you as you are? 
or will you be found hiding in Jesus Christ? Let's pray.